World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In cities across America, carjacking is on the rise. Sometimes drivers are relieved of their cars that are then used for a joyride. Sometimes they're used in far more serious crimes. And in all cases, there are more and more young people involved. But first, we turn to the situation in Ukraine. An air raid siren in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev marked the beginning of war. At 5 a.m. local time, Russia began shelling military locations across the country. By 6 a.m., Russian President Vladimir Putin had made it official. On Russian state television, he announced a special military operation, saying that Russia had been left with no choice but to defend the people of Ukraine from what he called a genocidal government. In the eastern regions of the country, unconfirmed videos showed Russian forces rolling across the border. And in the early hours, strikes were heard in Kiev. Shortly after, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky made a hastily arranged address to the nation. He called for calm from the Ukrainian people and said he had spoken to American President Joe Biden, who was gathering international support for the country. By 7 a.m., The Economist's Richard Enzor watched as some people began to flee. I'm looking at something that I can't believe. It is the biggest traffic jam I've ever seen. The road out of Kiev is completely packed for miles and miles and miles. World leaders have lined up to condemn Russia's actions, and promises of biting sanctions are multiplying. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced plans for massive and targeted sanctions aimed at the Kremlin. Russian's target is not only Donbass. The target is not only Ukraine. The target is the stability in Europe and the whole of the international peace order. And we will hold President Putin accountable for that. It's difficult to know how far the invasion will progress. Oliver Carroll reports on Ukraine for The Economist and gave us a sense of the situation now in the capital. 
So I'm speaking to you from a central Kiev courtyard, trying to find a place to speak outside of a fairly busy Kiev considering, but also a very despondent Kiev. Right where you are, what is the feeling on the street? What is the mood on the streets right now in Kiev? The mood on the streets is bewilderment. Right up to the very last minute, people didn't believe this was going to happen. That sense was helped by the official statements of Ukrainian public officials from the president downwards. Now that it has happened, I mean, you can see them. Kiev has become a sort of city of huddles. On the one hand, people huddling in groups around mobile phones and discussing the latest bit of information. On the other, you see these huddles of armed police officers and some apparently uniformed agents on street corners anticipating the next wave of attack. Because for my conversations with intelligence sources, they do believe that the attack on Kiev will be hybrid, that there will be an attempt to create a certain amount of insurgency and chaos in the city before any attempt to take power, which is what some Western intelligence believe might be coming. And, and what about Ukrainian defenses? We, we know that they're militarily overwhelmed with something like 180, 190,000 troops at the border. What's your sense of the fight back? It's very difficult to gauge the fight back. We do have reports that Ukrainian forces have repelled one offensive in, in Lugansk Oblast, which is the region right next to Russia. How true that is, we don't know. Certainly other reports are saying that Ukrainian forces there have decamped to more urban areas and they're taking a certain degree of cover there. We know that some Russian aircraft, according to some reports, have been brought down. That seems to be verified information. But it's still very early on to understand how impressive the Ukrainian fight back will be. Of course, they're outmaneuvered in terms of the technological superiority of the Russian Air Force. And I was speaking just earlier on to the former Foreign Minister Pavlo Klimkin, and he at the moment is is taking a very understandable line that the best hope for Ukraine now is for the West to broker an immediate ceasefire without more territorial loss because the way things are going, it doesn't look very promising for Ukraine. And among the Ukrainians that you've spoken to, what what do they think Russia's game is here? What, What do they expect to happen? What do they think Russia wants in the end? Ukrainians are bewildered. They don't quite know what's they can offer Russia in response. The calculation from the Russian side is that this operation might create a sense within Ukraine to push the leadership to offer a concession on NATO and alignment with Russia. But the mood is very much split between those who are panicked and want to get out and those who say they are going to stay they're going to sign up to conscript the military and that they will offer a fight. Quite which one of those moods will prevail, who knows. But if you were to ask me what Vladimir Putin wanted, I would also struggle to answer because certainly in the terms of something which might be deliverable for Ukraine, what Mr. Putin wants essentially and certainly what his speeches have said is the end of Ukraine as a nation state and naturally Ukrainians wouldn't want to agree to that. And I suppose one question is how much of a fight they would put up um, against that as a notion. We, we've seen reports of essentially ordinary citizens getting 
paramilitary training, do you do you get the sense that the people around you would be ready to take up arms and, and fight a full-on ground war? I think it will totally depend on the region. There are some regions which will take a more ambiguous attitude towards the Russian presence. But certainly in Kiev, there will be a response. The majority might want to do the, the understandable thing, which is keep their heads down and try to find a way through. Um, but even if one in 10, even if one in 20 Ukrainians do decide to take up arms and offer resistance, then that is going to create a, a tremendous barrier to Russian domination, even with their huge technological superiority. So it, it's really a question of what percentage of those people decide to put up a fight and, and whether you know, they can put up a fight quickly because the Russian calculation will be a blistering operation which is going to shock and awe Ukrainians into capitulation. The Ukrainians will hope they put up enough of a fight in the first instance so they can essentially, through a war of attrition, drain Russia out. The Russians shown this morning that, you know, in terms of escalatory intention, they will always be on the front foot. It's difficult to say which will prevail. Do you have a sense uh, on the other side of the border how much appetite for this, how much support there is for this war in Russia? In recent years, what we've seen is that so when the Kremlin got similar situations like this and created opposition, their response has been to double down. Unfortunately, only a small percentage of the repressive apparatus of the Kremlin controls is switched on here. And so most likely that will be turned up and that will create more fear and people will not want to speak out. So that even though Russians may privately express horror and disgust at what's happening, it's unlikely to have a real political leverage. And so inside the Russian system, the pressure cooker will increase, but uh, that will just simply encourage the hardliners to screw on the lid a little bit more. And, and what's been the, the, the response to this internationally among America, NATO allies? This morning, obviously, Ukraine is calling for maximum international pressure from sanctions through to cutting off from the SWIFT system, individual sanctions and sanctions more broadly on, on Russian business. Ultimately, the ability and, and, and the willingness of the West to act is, is going to be predicated on a number of things. First and foremost, how they might think that might affect Russia's future behaviour. Russia's shown that it will escalate before anything else. But second of all is also the situation back home with increasing gas prices, increasing energy bills. That is also going to pay a part. And for Ukraine, there's a worry that domestic concerns of gas prices and energy bills might trump the desire to really punish Russia and Putin's economic system by cutting them off from the world economy. So this is ultimately a test of Western resolve. Ukraine is calling for the maximum deterrence. Ukraine believes its future, its very existence, it has been threatened by Putin's intervention today. And by many accounts so far, that intervention looks like a large-scale invasion. Already the signs are that, that there is the intention that it is a grand invasion. With military operations concentrated in the Donbass region, but also tanks coming in from the north and from the east. And this is a much more multifaceted attack than 
was expected by Ukrainian military intelligence. It still looks unlikely that Russia will make an immediate attempt to take Kyiv. That is a, an operation of a different order. But battles are already underway. We just don't know how serious those battles are. And certainly my feeling is that in the main, Ukraine has decamped and retreated and looked to, to find areas where they can defend better from, from more urban areas, for example, rather than engaging in the kind of warfare which results in huge casualties. But it's early to say. Clearly, the intention that Putin wants to show is that this is going to be a battle to the end. And Ukraine has said that he was willing to fight to the end. And certainly the immediate reaction of Ukrainians is they'll follow through on that. So to put things very bluntly, this doesn't really look to have a good end. And the hope is a political resolution, but unfortunately we're some way away from that. Oliver, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In America, some kinds of crime became more rare during the pandemic. But data from a number of American cities suggest that one particular offense went up, so way up. Video. Police are searching for a carjacking suspect in Midtown. It happened around 4.30 yesterday afternoon at 54th Street and Broadway. Police These are in your hands. You're a target for carjackers. And one neighborhood in Philadelphia is learning that firsthand. New Orleans police investigate two carjackings and one attempt within a three-hour span Sunday night. Carjacking, simply taking someone out of their car and driving off with it, often involves a gun. And increasingly, it's young people who end up behind the wheel. So the federal government and the FBI doesn't count carjacking separately from other forms of car theft. But a number of American cities, uh, including Chicago, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Minneapolis, Oakland, do separate it out. And the past couple of years of data showed an enormous spike in carjacking that really accelerated with the beginning of the pandemic. Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent and is based in Chicago. Minneapolis, for example, saw the number of carjackings increase by six times from November 2019 to the same time, 2020. And it, it's carried on rising since. The figures have increased dramatically. They've more than doubled in most of the cities that count this. So why is this happening? Why this spike in carjacking? 
Well, that, that's hard to say. I mean, one of the theories that has been most prominent is that with schools closed and with a lot of things like social services and youth clubs and so on closed during the pandemic, a lot of young people who would have otherwise been occupied have basically drifted into this crime. And the sort of people saying that include Laurie Lightfoot, who's the mayor of Chicago. And I'll be frank and say, um, in Chicago, there was a correlation that we believe between remote learning and the rise in carjacking. A lot of parents went to work during the day thinking their teenagers were logged on for remote learning only to find something else. And I Jacob Freight, the mayor of Minneapolis, has made comments pretty much saying the same thing as Lightfoot. We need to make sure that young people have safe places to recreate, that they have things to do coming out of a global pandemic. Um, that they're getting back to operating and functioning in a society uh, where they feel comfortable and safe. And simultaneously- Other people I spoke to find that plausible. You know, the sheriff of Cook County, Tom Dart, said that they've seen a lot of young people involved. There's data gathered by the University of Chicago's crime lab, which showed that the arrests of people under the age of 18 for carjacking more than doubled in the city from 2019 to 2020. The number of arrests of adults went up by much less, by just 7%. A lot of these cars do seem to be being used for joyriding. They're often abandoned quite quickly, uh, having apparently just been driven around. But it's not the only possible explanation. And I think there probably are some more nuanced factors happening too. And what are they? One thing is just that guns are a lot more available. Gun sales have soared during the pandemic, and it seems like uh, more of them have drifted into criminal hands. The price of secondhand cars has also shot up. So getting hold of cars to sell them to chop shops, essentially for parts, has probably also gone up. And while it does seem that a lot of the people who are getting arrested for carjacking are often teenagers, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, the organizers or the main people involved in this crime. How do you mean? Why not? These crimes tend to be committed by relatively organized gangs. They might have a follow-up car, there might be three or four people, and they often use young people, teenagers, children as getaway drivers and in those roles where they're most likely to get caught, partly because people under the age of 18 are less likely to spend a lot of time in prison for it. Very few carjackings result in an arrest. In 2020, only 11% in Chicago were solved. Why why is this a, a tough problem to solve? This is what I kind of found fascinating. It turns out that, yeah, carjacking is a very difficult crime to police. You know, it's very unusual that the thieves are known to the victims. The victims find it quite difficult to identify somebody who's robbed them very quickly, usually. Um, these days, everybody's wearing masks, which can make identification harder. Even if you manage to stop the car with somebody driving it, you can't prove that that person who's driving it was actually involved in the assault necessarily. So you end up relying a lot on evidence that comes from forensics, that sort of thing. But again, that can be hard to prove that the forensics of the person who was in the car was the person who actually did the robbery. So there's lots of reasons. And the thing about carjacking is that it's a concern not only because it's a pretty bad crime in itself, but also... Cars that are stolen are often used in other crimes, and particularly, it seems, are often used in drive-by shootings, murders, and attempted murders. And according to University of Chicago, one in 66 of the teenagers who are arrested in carjacking are murdered in the typical year. So it, it all sounds pretty thorny. I mean, what are police forces trying to do to address this problem? 
the police in, in Chicago and in, in Cook County are trying to use the tracking data that, that modern cars often generate. So most cars sold since 2015 in the US come with GPS tracking systems built in. And the police say that it's often incredibly difficult for them to get hold of that kind of information quickly enough. They can spend ages on the phone. Often customer service teams don't want to sort of hand over this data. And they kind of think if they could get hold of it a lot quicker, then they'd be able to chase up with cars a lot quicker after the carjackings kind of first reported and that they would be able to to catch more criminals. They have been able to reduce the time in which they take to recover cars and to recover more cars. And the sheriff of Cook County pointed out that a generation ago, car immobilizers made it much harder to steal cars and car theft fell an awful lot. So they're really hoping that technology might be able to kind of fix this. As hopeful as that sounds, it doesn't seem as if technology is going to be the only solution here, though. There are a bunch of other factors you mentioned that figure in. The tech is a good place to start, but one of the sort of problems that American policing has in general, I think, is an over-reliance on technical solutions to crime. And several of the kind of academics I spoke to for this piece basically said, well, you know, it's all very well chasing cars faster, but actually it's a relatively small sort of subset of people who are committing these crimes. The police themselves sort of say that a lot of teenage carjackers will, you know, post video of them driving around these stolen vehicles on their TikToks or their Instagrams and stuff. And I think kind of if you really want to get a a long run solution to this, what you actually need is the kind of deep community policing that would allow you to know when some kid has turned up with what is clearly a stolen car and get a tip off, that sort of thing. You need intelligence led policing. And it's been a a long standing challenge for American police forces, kind of building the trust in the cities that they police and particularly the poorest, uh, often minority neighborhoods where these crimes are most common. But if they're really going to bring carjacking down, then that's where they need to really work. Thanks very much for your time, Daniel. Always a pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.